How can we restore the freedoms we once had long ago in the areas of war and the military? Well, as tough as it may sound, it starts with changing our personal views from the celebration of aggression, destruction, death, and hell to the celebration of freedom and life. And not just life, but as Jesus put it, have it more abundantly. It proceeds then to personal commitments and actions, spreading the word, and then to a larger agenda. So let's discuss these steps. First, we need a radical change of mind. Hopefully the foregoing lessons on biblical principles and the innumerable infractions of them in Mer American history will help begin that change. It will be quite easy for some people. The Bible says it, and that settles it. Many conservative Christians uh, may have never read the relevant passages in Scripture, nor considered their modern applications, but upon reading them for the first time and understanding them, faithful Christians will simply embrace the scriptural truth. For other people, however, there are many different types of impediments that will hinder this mental and spiritual process. For some, it will be loyalty to a particular political tradition uh, that is imperial, whether it's strong Hamiltonian federalism or union uh, or Republican progressivism or expansionism or Wilsonian leftist progressivism, doesn't matter. All those will create barriers to embracing freedom in the military. People accustomed to spreading their values by the use of force and theft and destruction and murder will find it difficult to adjust to a peaceful mission. Mission is the real spiritual issue at the heart of the modern war problem. What form shall missions take? All of the coercive measures mentioned uh, previously in these talks are simply secularized versions of the Christian Great Commission whether under the guise of spreading civilization, or education, or protecting citizens from themselves, or serving the expansion of transportation and commerce, or purging the land of dangerous savages, saving the Union, modernizing the world, or making the world safe for democracy, or fighting treachery or terrorism. In all cases, the use of government force to spread peace is a false version of the Christian mission. And in many cases, these solutions were resorted to by people operating explicitly, explicitly out of traditions that had secularized the Christian message. There were Unitarians, humanists, and social Darwinists of many stripes. The classic expression of such secularization was the American abolitionist and terrorist John Brown, who put into action the belief of some Unitarian activists that it is acceptable to employ violence to bring about social change. Sure enough, Brown's intellectual and financial backing came from a group of six Unitarian clergymen back up in the Northeast called the Secret Six. But this is only one radical expression. The principle of threatening or forcing people into so-called righteous behavior is the same whether it's John Brown murdering his political rivals or Woodrow Wilson waging a war to make the world safe for democracy and to institute a, le a League of Nations, or someone like Horace Mann prescribing a compulsory state education mandate upon the threat of fines or taking your children. Each of these constitutes a mission to improve society. Each case replaces the spiritual persuasion of the gospel mission and the protections of liberty that are found in God's written law with the quote-unquote persuasion of intimidation and physical coercion.
The basis of the Great Commission is the influence of the gospel, the move of the Spirit, the change of hearts and discipleships. And this is completely blown out of the picture and replaced by the barrel of a gun. Now this is, of course, uh, the mode of all secularistic and atheistic, atheistic regimes historically. Most people have heard of Mao Zedong's famous saying, political power grows out of the barrel of the gun. Most people have not heard the, the thoughts that followed that statement. He said, quote, having guns, we can control party organizations. We can also create cadres, create schools, create culture, create mass movements. All things grow out of the barrel of a gun. Whoever wants to seize and retain state power must have a strong army. Some people ridicule us as advocates of the omnipotence of war. Yes, we are advocates of the omnipotence of revolutionary war. That is good, not bad. It is Marxist. Only with guns can the whole world be transformed. Just as Wilson and his contemporaries like H.G. Wells believed they were fighting the war to end all wars, Mao likewise concluded, we are advocates of the abolition of war. We do not want war, but war can only be abolished through war. And in order to get rid of the gun, it is necessary to take up the gun. Likewise, Marx's uh, partner, Frederick Engels, was very blunt about this uh, in his essay on authority, quoting, uh, from him. A revolution is certainly the most authoritarian thing there is. It is the act whereby one part of the population imposes its will upon another part by means of rifles, bayonets, and cannon. Authoritarian means, if such there be at all. And if the victorious party does not want to have fought in vain, it must maintain this rule by means of the terror which its arms inspire. But we must not make the mistake of thinking this principle only applies to these leftists and revolutionaries and communists. Again, these are only explicit, extreme expressions of the principle of social change by violence, which is the logical conclusion of it, if you will. But the exact same principle underlies every attempt by man to transform man and society, even, the advance, uh, even to advance the so-called common good through coercive means compulsory state schooling, sin taxes, welfare schemes, drug wars, substance control laws, wealth redistribution, corporate welfare, public-private partnerships, government contracts, and thousands more that can be imagined. It's the same principle applied many ways, and it has been applied in many ways from very early on in our history. American Christians, especially fundamentalists and evangelicals, if serious about the Bible and biblical freedom, have got to end the love affair with America's standing army. It is unbiblical, it is outrageously unbiblically expensive, and it's invasive, destructive, and of course deadly, often not in pure defense. We have to stop this mentality, uh, as a popular country singer put it, we'll put a boot in your ass, it's the American way. Stop applauding everything the military does as if it were automatically the gleam of national greatness. Quit praising all soldiers all the time as sacrosanct individuals. Quit forbidding any criticism of the military as if it were the holy of holies. It's simple. For many Christians, the use of force and deadly force and the military that embodies that power are idols. 
And like King David taking a census of the people for battle against God's will, we too often trust more in our nation's military capacities than we do in God. This has got to end if we are ever to see freedom once again. Now while for some the middle hurdle will be these political devotions, uh, others cling to the, necessi <laughs> the necessity of military might out of their view of Israel and the end times. And I'm not going to go into a full discussion of eschatology and foreign policy here except to say that this view is false. It takes a very special recent and fairly convoluted view of Bible prophecy, even though it's wildly popular, to, to derive that position that Christians today should specially favor the modern nation called Israel with our foreign aid and our military support and help her against her Islamic neighbors. This view is most often supported by referring to the promise given to Abraham, quote, I will bless those who bless you, and, and him who dishonors you I will curse, Genesis 12.3. The most definitive work of a dispensationalist expressing this view is also the clearest on the point. He says, quote, politically speaking, this statement is God's foreign policy to the Gentiles in their relationship with the Jewish people. That's Arnold Fruchtenbaum in his book on Israel. Now this view is easily debunked, although I admit not thoroughly, which I don't really have the time here to go into, uh, but it's debunked simply by considering the biblical context. This promise was given to Abraham before he had any children. Now if we're just to take this verse on this point in Scripture, as it's so often done, as the basis of blessing nations in relation to Abraham, then we logically must apply it equally to all of Abraham's children. All of Abraham's children, and that includes Ishmael, the father of the Arab nations. Now this would mean, of course, that we should uh, give as much foreign aid and military aid to all of uh, modern Israel's Arab neighbors, and of course we do. But this is absurd from a biblical viewpoint. The, the definitive author above that we just quoted uh, would agree on that point. Now on what basis is this absurd? It's so because later scriptural qualifications narrow the definition of Abraham's seed. And I agree. But here's the rub. The means of qualifying who actually inherits the promise of Abraham becomes the very means of disqualifying modern-day Israel as well. And the argument is that later scripture qualifies the promise as not to Ishmael, but to Isaac, and then not to Esau, but to Jacob, who is later renamed Israel. True enough. But this sets a precedent of qualification that doesn't, as proponents of this view would like you to believe, stop with Jacob. Paul himself uses this exact argument in Romans chapter 9 to prove that Israel also shall be redefined in light of Christ. He says, quote, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And he concludes, What shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, uh, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Uh, they have stumbled, stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I, lay, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
In other words, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the seed of Abraham, is made up of the faithful, not the physical Jews per se. It's based on faith and not on bloodlines. Indeed, in the apostolic era, most Jews were not going to make it into the kingdom, and yet the resulting entity, that is the church, would still be called Israel. Now, it's clear why Jesus could tell the Jewish leadership of His day that they were not the seed of Abraham or even children of God. Arguing with them in John 8, He says, You are of your father the devil. And for this very reason, He would put them on the cursed end of God's foreign policy. Quoting the same prophecy of the stumbling stone as Paul would later do, Jesus said to those Jews of His day this, quote, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. American Christians have simply got to get past the view that there's something special about this ethno-political entity established in the land of Israel in 1948. This is a huge mental hurdle for many Christians, but it's also an enormous theological delusion that leads many, millions, to con continue promoting an unbiblical view of war in the military, especially in regard to having a strong threatening presence in the Middle East. Christians must also realize that biblical military and war are pro-life issues. It doesn't make much sense to cry out against abortion while at the same time demanding our sons and daughters and other people's children be sent into wars that may be unnecessary at the risk of their lives. Okay, this does not discount fighting in just wars when necessary, of course, uh, for these are wars that are there to protect life against aggression. But the war missions mentality is almost always contrary to this principle. And the sad fact is too many Christians who decry the government protected slaughter of children who are in the womb are way too tolerant of government-mandated slaughter of kids at 19 or 20 years old, not to mention the slaughter of thousands of civilian bystanders in the interim. A consistent pro-life view is going to avoid that oversight. Uh, unnecessary war along with abortion is a modern form of human sacrifice akin to the Moloch worship which is forbidden in Scripture in Leviticus 18 and 20. As I write in my book, God Versus Socialism, quote, it should be obvious that if any war is waged unjustly and troops are killed in that battle for an ungodly cause, then the perpetrators of that war have offered human blood as an agent of social change, rather than relying on godly principles. This is human sacrifice, pure and simple. Christians should not be afraid to oppose war, to oppose it vigorously, and to oppose hasty wars especially. In fact, Christians ought to be leading the opposition to such wars by overwhelming numbers and deafening cries. Now let's talk about some practical steps we can take, uh, that individuals can take towards this goal. Simple. Don't join the current armed forces. Don't join unless there's an invasion of our land or a very clear biblical defensive cause which you deem worthy of fighting for. And thankfully, the one redeeming quality of our massive bureaucratic standing army is that enlistment is currently voluntary to a large degree, at least on the point of joining. Now, once you join, of course, it becomes a binding contract, and that's important to remember. Once you report to basic training for the first time, you are obligated to be enlisted for eight years. 
probably half of which will be active duty and is very difficult to get out of. While there's no current obligation to join, the vestiges of the old draft system remain in place just in case. Every able-bodied male 18 to 25 must register with the Selective Service System so that the government has you on a list in case it needs to reinstate the draft. In its own words, the Selective Service exists to, quote, provide our nation with the most prompt, efficient, and equitable draft possible if the country should need it. Failure to register, which is your duty by law, remains punishable as a felony, including up to five years in prison and up to a quarter million dollar fine. In short, you cannot legally avoid military conscription in this country if the government demands that you fight. And in the meantime, the government continues, like King David, to number its people for war. But at least for now, actual enlistment is voluntary. By the way, recruiters have been known to lie about benefits and many other things in this process to get young men to enlist, and that's a known fact. If you do decide to join a military force in the event of a just cause, you should consider your local state guards first rather than immediately joining the National Army. State defense forces are separate from the National Guard units that used to bear the names of their states and maybe sometimes still do, uh, but these were later uh, nationalized in 2007 so that the governors no longer have any control over them. Nevertheless, many states still have their own state defense forces on the side which serve various purposes. Extreme caution is still needed, however. Only some of these forces are armed. Some of them go so far as to prohibit their members from carrying weapons while in uniform. Ironic twist on the idea of a defense force, I know, but it should ward anyone a way who thinks like I do that the Second Amendment has some importance and that the right to bear arms shall not be infringed. The regulations and goals differ from state to state, so I would ask you to research your own state and make an informed decision. Furthermore, don't support political candidates who have militaristic or imperial agendas. Don't support those who provoke unnecessary wars, who call for huge defense spending and military interventionism abroad. This, I know, greatly narrows the field of viable candidates today, but it is the necessary view if biblical freedom is ever to prevail in this land again. Political choices arise to meet overwhelming demand. If we don't change our demands along with our attitudes, our political choices won't change either. And if our political choices don't change, the tyranny will continue. The first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, John Jay, is often quoted by Christians in regard to the United States being a Christian nation and the need for statesmen to be Christians. He's famously quoted on this point, quote, It is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. And this is all good and true, but rarely is this quotation given its full context. Jay was not speaking merely in general, but in the particular context of foreign policy, of peace, and of war. Here's the context to his letter written to John Murray, October 12, 1816. It appears to me that the gospel not only recognizes the whole moral law and extends and perfects our knowledge of it, but also enjoins on all mankind the observance of it. It certainly is very desirable that a pacific disposition should prevail among all nations. The most effectual way of producing it is by extending the prevalence and influence of the gospel.
real Christians will abstain from violating the rights of others and therefore will not provoke war. Almost all nations have peace or war at the will and pleasure of rulers whom they uh, do not elect and who are not always wise or virtuous. Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers and it is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. Now we cannot, of course, fully endorse Jay's politics, for he was squarely on the side of the nationalists, joining the causes and political theory that I have so often criticized in this study. But at least at this one point he had the doctrine correct. And ironically, for its pacific tone, the letter was a reply to the issue of pacifism, which Jay adequately rebuked. In other words, even while promoting a doctrine of justifiable war, Jay nevertheless upholds the principles of individual rights, of international peace, of non-aggression, non-interventionism, that missions should be based on the spread of the gospel, and that Christians should, cho should choose candidates who do not desire to provoke further wars. Now, Christians should commit these aspects of political theory to memory and practice. And this commitment must extend beyond our view of government. It should apply to every area of life, including the entire military-industrial complex to a large degree. If you own a business, don't contract with the military unless you are absolutely certain the military is not using that technology, product, or service to provide for the purposes of wars of aggression. Now, perhaps there's room here for some instances uh, or for pleas of ignorances. Uh, but certainly, if you know for a fact that you're supplying unnecessary aggression, then there's a moral culpability for the bloodshed and destruction on your part. And it's a difficult decision, of course, when the livelihood and lifestyles of your employees are at stake. But you at least have to ask the question of yourself. And you should be more than willing to address that question if you're a Christian. For consumers, try as much as possible to avoid patronizing companies that do contribute to these kinds of wars. Consider just for a moment the vast industry that's grown up around military aggression. If a company exists which manufactures, for example, guided missiles, uh, that company only makes profits when it contracts with the government to sell those missiles. But what happens if the military stockpile reaches its capacity of missiles? Well, no more orders come in. The company has no more income. The company has no more future unless it changes its product. So several people, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands, who work for that company will face job loss and then hardship. Now, these are people with families, with children in schools, with mortgages and bills to pay. Unless that company gets more orders for its bombs, it doesn't move forward and these people stand to lose. But unless the military actually uses its missiles, it doesn't need to order many new ones. And thus the company has a vital interest, perhaps, perhaps a desperate economic incentive, for the military to indeed fire those missiles and fire them continually in order to maintain cash flow and the employment and the lifestyles of its employees. And this can only mean one thing that in our society there are many economic incentives and motives driving America to continually, continually go to war. And those profiting from the military-industrial complex are a significant example. 
Now consider that there are literally hundreds of such companies across this country, maybe thousands. The Department of Defense writes new contracts daily, publishing only those that are larger than $5 million. In 2010 alone, the department contracted out over $300 billion worth of contracts to private businesses. And this means literally thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people are dependent upon revenue from the military for their lifestyle. The same moral culpability argument applies equally to those massive construction firms that share in the rebuilding contracts after such wars have wreaked their havoc and a new city and a new state must be built from the rubble. If the war was unjust to begin with, then being paid by the perpetrator to clean it up, slightly more redeeming than aiding in the destruction itself, is still wrong. Now, no doubt it's important to have a strong defense system in place, but this can be accomplished effectively through biblical means without resorting to a standing army, without resorting to drafts or wars of aggression. If this were not the case, God would not have written His law and His word the way He did. And our challenge today is, one, to look beyond the massively powerful army with which we are so enamored and see it for the unbiblical system that it is and two, to have the conviction and courage to call it unbiblical even while it's unpopular to do so. Three, to begin to make personal commitments that align with biblical values. And four, begin to call and work for greater political change. And with this, we must simultaneously develop a decentralized system for recruiting and training voluntary biblical militias for genuine defense. And we should do so at the local level. Churches could greatly strengthen both the convictions and the efforts of individuals in this regard simply by teaching and preaching on the relevant passages from Scripture and the implications of those passages as I've discussed in the first and last parts of this chapter. And then we should lead, uh, churches should lead their people vehemently in prayer against all our enemies, including the ones in our own nation who would involve us in unnecessary wars uh, for their own profit. Pray for peace sounds like advice taken from an old hippie Jesus movement. It's actually necessary and effective, uh, an effective part of the advance of God's kingdom and the protection of freedom in the military. I would recommend the following prayer, which is adapted from the Book of Common Prayer uh, used by the Reformed Episcopal Church. For our country and our armed forces, let us pray. Almighty God, who has given us this good land for our heritage, let us always be mindful of your favor. Bless us with industry, prosperity, learning, and purity of life. Save us from discord and violence, and from pride and arrogance. Preserve us from public calamities, pestilence, and famine, from war, conspiracy, and rebellion, and especially from national sins and corruption. Defend our liberties and give wisdom to those in authority so justice and peace may prevail. Make us strong and great in the fear of God and in the love of righteousness so that with your blessing we may be a blessing to all people. In prosperity, fill our hearts with thankfulness and in trouble, do not let our trust in you fail. We ask that you bless and protect all those who serve in the defense of our country upon land and upon the water and in the air. Ever spare them 
from being ordered into a war of aggression or oppression. Use them, if need be, as your instruments in the defense of our life and liberty. But restrain the greed and wrath of man that wars may cease in all the earth. Deepen in the hearts of our defenders the spirit of peace. And for his sake, may they ever love and serve the Prince of Peace, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.